Life in the 17th century was rough. It was a dog-eat-dog world. In the last three episodes, we have talked about the American colonies and the constant state of war that the colonists and their native allies have been engaged in. The fact of the matter is, if you weren't afraid of your settlement or your village being raided or burned down by hostile forces, there was also a very clear and real biological threat that could strike at any moment. Smallpox. Smallpox was the killer you couldn't see coming. It decimated the populations of indigenous people in North America. And yes, the Europeans had more immunity to smallpox, but that didn't mean it also didn't kill them in large numbers as well. Between April and December of 1721, over 5,000 Bostonians had smallpox, and over 800 of them died from it. Smallpox caused more than three quarters of all deaths in Boston that year. It would also have a significant impact on medicine and the freedom of the press, as well as the backdrop of a coming-of-age story of one of America's most ardent revolutionaries, Benjamin Franklin. In March of 1717, a young James Franklin returns home to Boston after several years of learning the printer's trade in England. James was young, ambitious, and eager to get started making a name for himself in publishing. At the same time, James' father, Josiah, was desperately seeking an apprenticeship for his younger son, Benjamin who was at the time 12 years old. In those years, most apprenticeships started at the age of 10. Josiah had hoped that Benjamin would apprentice under himself, and for two years, Benjamin would work for his father, learning to make candles and soap. Ben, however, had other plans. Even as a boy, he was idealistic, a dreamer, and longed for a life on the open seas. Fearing that his son would run away and join the crew of a ship, he desperately sought an apprenticeship for his son that would keep him on land and keep him interested. Josiah would introduce Benjamin to many different trades and craftsmen to see if anything would spark his son's interest. However, after two years of searching and not finding an adequate apprenticeship, Benjamin almost by default became an apprentice under his older brother, James. The apprenticeship was meant to last for nine years, leaving Benjamin indebted to his brother until the age of 21. In 1717, Boston had only one newspaper that was actually more like a newsletter. In fact, it was called the Boston Newsletter. The newsletter was published by a man named John Campbell, who had been the town's postmaster for decades. Campbell was part of a network of other postmasters from New Hampshire to Virginia, and they would share news and information back and forth with one another. As postmaster and a government official, Campbell also claimed that his newsletter was published by authority. So in 1719, when Campbell lost the position as postmaster and a new postmaster, William Booker won the position, Booker assumed he would also take over the publishing of the Boston Newsletter. However, Campbell refused to let that part of the job 
go. Booker then responded by starting his own newspaper, the Boston Gazette, also published with authority. He also hired James Franklin, the newest and cheapest of the town's publishers, to print the Boston Gazette for him. After two years, however, Booker lost the position as postmaster, and the new postmaster decided to end the contract with Franklin and take his newspaper to another printer, prompting James Franklin to make a bold move. James would launch the first independent newspaper in the American colonies, called the New England Current. And it would not be long before that independent voice would be challenged. One of the leaders in Boston was a prominent Puritan minister by the name of Cotton Mather. Now, I have spoken about Cotton Mather before. He was the one that first published the story of Hannah Dustin, which we spoke about during King William's War. He is also probably most famously known for his part in the Salem witch trials. Now, Cotton Mather, he was a fire and brimstone preacher. His grandfather and father were some of the colony's first Puritan ministers, and he was expected to enter the ministry, an expectation that he lived up to. He was a very studious child and read the Bible every day. At the age of 15, he became the youngest Harvard graduate in a century. He quickly made a name for himself and was admired as a preacher. So in 1685, when children in the township of Salem were exhibiting strange fits, and accusations of witchcraft began flying, Mathers was called in as a consultant. In addition to praying for them, which included fasting and meditation, he observed their possessions and wrote about them in his book, Memorable Providences Related to Witchcraft and Possessions. Mather stated in his work that immortal souls exist because there are witches and devils. He also stated that witches manifest themselves spectrally, and he was opposed to any psychological explanation for the fits. He felt that persons who admitted to practicing witchcraft were sane, and he counseled against doing magic because of its association with the devil. Mather's contemporary, Robert Califf, was very critical of Mather's, writing, Mr. Cotton Mather was the most active and forward of any minister in the country in those matters, taking home one of the children and managing such integrities with that child, and after printing such an account of the whole in his memorable providences, as conduced much to the kindling of those flames, and in Sir William's time threatened the devouring of this country. 19th century historian Charles Wentworth Upham shared the view that the afflicted in Salem were imitating the Goodwin children, but he put the blame on both Cotton and his father, Increase Mather, writing, They are answerable, more than almost any other men have been, for the opinions of their time. It was indeed a superstitious age, but made much more so by their operations, influence, and writings, beginning with Increase Mather's movement at the Assembly of Ministers in 1681, and ending with Cotton Mather's dealings with the Goodwin children, and the account thereof which he printed and circulated far and wide. For that reason, then, in the first place, I hold those two men responsible for what is called Salem witchcraft. The years preceding the witchcraft hysteria saw many men publicly apologizing for their role in the trials, but not Mather. 
In fact, for years, he openly called those asking for a public apology as supporters of witchcraft. While Mathers had a reputation as a religious zealot, calling on fire and brimstone, condemning witchcraft, and writing extensively on possession and spectral hauntings, historian Stephen Koss wrote in his book, The Fever of 1721, regarding Mathers' character. In a sense, Mathers' biggest Salem crime was his failure to learn and change, to control his tendencies to speak and act presumptuously to overstate, exaggerate, show off, and cling unalterably to certain convictions. His inability to correct those flaws and rein in those excesses would shape his life and wrap his legacy. As Caliph and others criticized Mather's part in the witch trials, Mather's popularity waned in Boston. But by 1710, he had set out to rebrand himself. It had been nearly 30 years since the Salem Witch Trials, and he had lost three children after they each suffered devastating seizures. He also lost a wife to either cancer or tuberculosis, and both of his daughters would suffer horrific burns in two separate incidents. Koss writes, In 1710, in a short book titled Boniface, an Essay Upon the Good, he declared that the true measure of a man was not political power, wealth, or even traditional notions of sectarian religious piety, but rather his willingness to do good. The book enumerated ways in which schoolmasters, magistrates, rich men, officials, lawyers, ministers, and physicians could display practical piety, with an emphasis on expanding the clergy's involvement in medicine, one of Mather's lifelong interests. Interestingly, Mathers loved science, or natural philosophy as it was referred to at the time, from medicine to astronomy to botany. In 1712, he actually sent letters to the Royal Society in London. The Royal Society was a scientific group that was actually presided over by Sir Isaac Newton. Other members of the group included astronomers like Edmund Halley. Remember Halley's comment? Yeah, that's named after Edmund Halley. In the 18th century, the Royal Society was the premier scientific organization, and Cotton Mathers would become the first American-born fellow of the Royal Society. Unfortunately, soon after being granted a fellowship to the Society, he would also lose his second wife and three more children to a measles epidemic. Reeling from such a tragedy, Mathers became so devoted to helping victims, especially the poor, in finding a treatment for measles. He published pamphlets on how to treat the disease, something that was unprecedented in the American colonies. And actually, the treatments he prescribed were quite effective. This also showed that he was open-minded and interested in new developments in the field of medicine, something that would make Mathers a powerful voice for the devastating epidemic that was about to befall Boston. The fear of smallpox was a real concern for Boston officials, so much so that new ships looking to enter Boston, the British Empire's third busiest port, were usually quarantined at Spectacle Island to prevent the spread of a virus like smallpox. However, because the HMS Seahorse was connected to the Royal Navy, the same rules did not apply. The captain of the Seahorse was a naval officer by the name of Thomas Durrell. He was tasked with defending the eastern seaboard and pursuing pirates and privateers 
up and down the coast. After stopping to swap out some crew in Barbados, he sailed for his home port of Boston. The issue was he didn't just pick up a new crew in Barbados, but something far more deadly. As the seahorse made its way into Boston, the first crew member, Samuel Gregory, died. As the ship's captain and an officer of Great Britain, he was responsible for keeping his crew and the public safe from infection. Durrell, however, decided to anchor not at Spectacle Island, but at Castle Island. He claimed that repairs were needed to his boat there. Unfortunately, this also made it easier for his infected crew members to slip away for shore leave into Boston. By the time Boston officials discovered the sick crew aboard the seahorse, the damage was done. A bailiff inspected the seahorse and discovered two or three cases of smallpox in various stages before ordering the ship to leave the harbor. Despite the sailors being quarantined immediately, nine other sailors at Boston Harbor exposed to the crew of the seahorse came down with smallpox in early May of 1721. On the 26th of May, Cotton Mathers wrote in his diary, the grievous calamity of the smallpox has entered the town. For months, Mathers had been preaching to his congregation a warning of the speedy approach of the destroying angel. And while Mathers had lamented that smallpox had descended on Boston, he believed that he had a way to rid the town of the disease. As a fellow of the Royal Society, Mathers was sent articles by fellow members. One such article was labeled, an account or history of the procuring smallpox by incision or inoculation, as it has, for some time, been practiced at Constantinople. The article had been sent by a Greek physician, Emmanuel Timoni. Timoni explained in the article how you could take a sample from a smallpox vessel of an infected individual and administer the sample through a series of incisions or cuts into the arms of a healthy person known as virulation. The healthy person would develop a mild case of smallpox, followed by an immunity to the disease. A story like this excited Mather. In 1708, Mathers was also given a young enslaved man by a member of his congregation. He named the man Onesimus. Onesimus had told Mathers that he had received a similar operation as described in Timoni's article. Onesimus is said to have been immunized before being sold into slavery or during the slave trade when he made the journey from the West Indies to Boston. The virulation method of inoculation had been used among sub-Saharan Africans for decades. The technique was prevalent among enslaved colonial people from numerous African locations and throughout the American slave trade. Slave communities maintained the practice of inoculation regardless of their geographical origin. Mathers saw the inoculation as a God's providential gift. He immediately wrote a letter to the 10 practicing doctors in Boston. He summarized the information he had and the knowledge he learned of the inoculation and urged the doctors to adopt the practice. The majority of the doctors actually rejected the practice. All of them, in fact, except one, Zabdiel Boylston of Harvard University. And on June 26, 1721, Boylston immunized his six-year-old son, Thomas, followed by his 36-year-old slave and the slave's two-year-old son. All survived quite moderate cases of smallpox without injury or deformity. 
much to the doctor's relief. Now, the first issue of the New England Current was published in August of 1721, around the same time that Boylston released the results of his son's and his enslaved immunizations and began administering the same treatment to others in Boston. Many residents of Boston were shocked and horrified that Boylston had purposely infected his own son, and so too was James Franklin. Now, in reality, virulation still did present a risk of death for about 2% of those having the procedure. But unknown of those type of statistics, Franklin began publishing counter-arguments to Mathers and Boylston's support for inoculations. The town's only physician with an actual medical degree was Dr. William Douglas, and Douglas had published in The Current an argument on why he did not support smallpox inoculations, writing, Some have been carrying about instruments of inoculation and bottles of poisonous humor to infect all who were willing to submit to it. Can any man infect a family in the morning and pray to God in the evening that the distemper will not spread? Douglas even calling Mathers and his supporters, quote, gentlemen of piety and learning profoundly ignorant of the matter. Historian Walter Isaacson wrote, it is the first example and a robust one at that of a newspaper attacking the ruling establishment in America. James Franklin also ridiculed Boylston in his paper, portraying him as a quack by Douglas and other physicians. Dr. Boylston became notorious in Boston, and the colonial authority was wary of his and Mather's experiment. In August, the city council asked him to explain this method, and the council denounced inoculations and ordered him to stop them immediately. But despite the resistance, Boylston was supported by local educated men such as Cotton's father, Increase Mather, and four other inoculation ministers known as Benjamin Coleman, Thomas Prince, John Webb, and William Cooper. With their influence, two days later, the inoculations were permitted to continue. The Boston Gazette and the Boston Newsletter began attacking James Franklin's paper. Mather's cousin, Thomas Walter, went so far to accuse James Franklin of being a part of an American version of the notorious Hellfire Club in the Boston Newsletter. Now, the Hellfire Club was a group of London elitists and heretics. They claimed that the leader of the club was the devil himself, and they would conduct black masses and drunken, we'll go with parties, drunken parties. James, however, was delighted, knowing that the public controversy would sell papers. However, all this back and forth and arguing in the newspapers had a very polarizing effect on the public. Boylston was assaulted on the streets and forced to go into hiding for weeks. Mathers, too, would be attacked by the public. In one instance, someone threw a small bomb into his window with a note that read, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you, I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox to you. James Franklin's paper would be labeled salacious and vile by both the Boston Newsletter and the Boston Gazette. James, however, was not bothered by this. He wanted his paper to be different, to be witty, to be salacious, to be satirical. In fact, that same year, in 1721, he began printing the letters 
of an old woman named Silence Duguid. Now, leave it to a 16-year-old boy in the middle of an epidemic to try and bring levity to a situation. James and his friends never caught on that it was his younger brother writing the Silence Duguid letters. Benjamin Franklin wrote in his autobiography. They read it, comment on it in my hearing, and I had the exquisite pleasure of finding it met with approbation and in their different guesses at the author. None were named but men of some character among us from learning and ingenuity. Now, after the smallpox controversy, James continued to question authority, mock authority, and give a voice to those challenging authority. In June of 1722, James would publish a piece in The Current that would draw err from the government. James would write an article seemingly mocking religion, writing, of all the knaves, the religious knave is the worst. The Boston authorities were outraged. They demanded James seek approval before publishing his paper further. James refused. Boston then forbade James from even publishing the New England Current. Now, to get around this, James decided the best thing to do would be to continue publishing his paper under the name of another publisher. And in February of 1723, appeared atop the New England Current masterhead, wrote, printed and sold by Benjamin Franklin. James, however, did not treat his brother well. James could be downright abusive, berating and beating his younger brother. And that wasn't necessarily out of the ordinary for an indentured apprentice who could be forced to endure rough conditions in the hope of a good career. Benjamin later argued for his freedom, claiming resentment for the blows his passion too often urged him to bestow upon me. But James refused to let his brother out of the apprenticeship. And at just 17 years old, Ben Franklin ran away from the print shop to Philadelphia, one of the biggest cities in the colonies. James would later admit that he might have been too harsh on his brother. In his autobiography, Ben says that James was otherwise not an ill-natured man. Perhaps I was too saucy and provoking. James Franklin tried to keep the current going, but constant battling with Mathers and Boston authorities wore him down. After the 255th issue of The Current, dated June 25th, 1726, James Franklin folded the paper. He moved to Rhode Island, seeking a more liberal environment, and died there in 1735. In the aftermath of the smallpox epidemic, Boylston successfully administered the inoculation to over 200 people, many of them being students and faculty at Harvard University. His practice of inoculations was accepted in Boston by much of the academic community. As Mather and Boylston published their findings, similar procedures were done in London during an outbreak of smallpox there. Virulation would quickly become a widespread and well-researched practice in the West. In 1723, Boylston was invited to England and received honors from King George. While in London, he also published an account of his work titled, A Historical Account of Smallpox Inoculated in New England. 
I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please comment any thoughts, opinions, or questions you may have down below. For any citations and show notes, please visit my website at www.historicalus.com. And as always, if you have not already, please help this video by giving it a thumbs up and subscribing to the channel. If you are on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider giving this podcast a review. And remember to hit that bell so that you will be notified whenever I post a new episode. That is it for me today. I will see you in the next episode as we continue down the road to revolution. Bye.